into the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, in your Bibles. We're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount. If you are using one of our pew Bibles, um, it's going to, the Sermon on the Mount begins on page 858. We're going to be looking at 860 today, but 858 is where the Sermon on the Mount begins in the New Testament. You may be wondering, what, what is the Sermon on the Mount? Well, I, we, if you want to know more, please take one of these Bibles. It's our gift to you to read. If you need a Bible and that you can understand and in modern day English, please, it's our gift to you. It's not just for decoration. But the Sermon on the Mount is the uh, largest recorded sit-down speech that Jesus ever gave. The largest message ever recorded by Him in one continuous place where he sat down with multitudes in the mountainside of Galilee and taught people from all walks of life about what it means to have a blessing from God that transforms your life, but also makes you righteous. And many people have looked on the Sermon on the Mount and they, they've thought, what is it all about? What does it mean that we read this, and there have been countless, countless books written about the Sermon on the Mount, these words of Jesus. Some people believe it is a political or ethical message, that it's speaking about Jesus uh, being a pacifist, or Jesus being Sarah, Sarah. we're all just in, in the same boat, so we're just going to live and let live. Some people have read into that, I don't see where that's come about. I can see some of the places where they might think that that's the significance. But that's not what it's about. Some people believe it's a strict, strict guideline. That if you were to follow it to the nth degree, if you were to live it out completely, then God must be obligated to provide righteousness for you. That that you get the pass. You've earned your reward. You get the trophy of eternal life. You get the riches and the blessing and all these kind of things. But that's not what it is either because if we really read it, we'll see that there is no way possible. It cuts us to the quick. It cuts us deep to show that there is no way possible we could ever achieve that. But looking at it based on everything else that Jesus has taught, we see there's a central word that's repeated over and over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount. And when you hear a word repeated over and over and over in a sermon, you can pretty well know that is what the focus of that message is about. And that word is righteousness. A righteousness that's not self-righteous, it's not self-made, for those are impossible. And those are not pleasing towards God. It's a righteousness that He gifts He blesses. He gives of His own accord, out of His own act of grace. You see our churches all the time talking about grace. Well, what is grace? It's basically God's righteousness given to us or given to those with unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. It's like it's the unreward. Uh, it's something you didn't deserve. It's not something you could work for. It's not something you'd achieve. It's, it's a reward. It's a gift that's not dependent on your status, your stature, your position, your social aid. It's not in any dependent way dependent on that. But then sometimes we wonder, well, okay, that's, that sounds like an awesome gift. But what do I do with it? What do I do with it? 
Let's read. I want to ask you to turn to chapter 6. We're going to be starting in verse 25. Would you stand with me as we read God's Word? And we're looking at where you see the subtitle in, in the text. It says sometimes the cure for anxiety. If you're worrying about what to do with it, here's the cure for your anxiety, the cure for your worry, the, the gift of joy. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life. You may be thinking, well, that's better, easier said than done. What you will eat or what you will drink. Now you may be thinking, now you're preaching to Baptists here, right? Or about your body or what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They, they don't reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? Why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you. You have little faith. So don't worry saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Let us pray. Lord God, I ask that you would help us to take your word, to remember where it comes from as inspired by your Holy Spirit and, and preserved for us for generations. I pray that you would teach us today. That you would help me be your servant, but that we would come to a greater understanding of what it means to, to know you, to hear from you, to see what you've did, done, and to know what it means to be gifted with grace and what it means to, to live that out. Show us, Lord, today in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, I have been the pastor here for a little over five years. And that's not for fishing for applause or anything like that. That's not what that's about. Um, uh, I heard something. Sorry, that's not what it was about. But I want you to know I have not always been a pastor. I didn't come out of uh, labor and went on my first birthday and be like, That's the word of the Lord. That wasn't me, okay? Um, I have had multiple jobs doing different things, and this wasn't just the one that just worked out either. I, I do believe it's a calling. But in college, I, one of the jobs I had was was really unique. I had been a, a, a packaging executive for Piggly Wiggly. I had a, some, some of you get that. I had been um, an aquatic engineer for the garden center at Walmart. Um, I, I had been an expert in cinematography at a video rental store. Um, but this job, you know what that means, right? I'm the guy that rewinded the videotape. Um, uh, 
But at this job, I was a toyologist. You may say, yeah, he's a big kid. I was a toyologist for the then megalith and recently bankrupt Toys R Us. Toys R Us. And so a part of the toyologist job was, you know, you had to stock shelves and that and do the same things that you're, you're supposed to do to help clean up. But on Saturdays, Saturdays got exciting. Because I would show up as the door opened and I would spend pretty much the whole day picking out, taking items I'd picked out that week. Three of them we had a lot in stock and teaching kids how to play with them. That's a fun, fun job. Let me tell you, uh, it was back when the Razor scooters were real big and I would just scoot around and I would show them this remote control doohickey or this dollhouse that, that did this or, or whatever it was we had in stock because it was important for the kids to know how to play with it and the parents to understand what it meant to have this and what it cost and, and it was important for the store to say, get rid of it. But we, in doing so, you had to like show people there's some guidelines. Like if you have a remote control car, if you push left, it's going to go left. Or if you push right, it's going to go right. If you push forward, it's going to go forward or backwards. Unless it's a drone or airplane, then it's completely backwards. And, and you know, some of you that have experienced those and be like, oh, I want to get this neat remote control. And you're like, how in the world do you? I, I don't understand. But what it taught me is that it's real easy to try to talk in theory about things. But when the rubber meets the road, sometimes people just need to know, well, what am I supposed to do with that? That seems like a really big, clever thing or a really good idea or a really great vision. But but what does it mean to actually do it? What does it actually look like? And so Jesus, in giving this sermon, a sermon that we're meant to listen and respond and then share with others, he he, he gives us this, this picture of righteousness a righteousness that is not earned by our, by our own ability or resources or status. It's God's unmerited favor. It's something we didn't deserve, and yet He graciously gave us to us. His righteousness was credited to our life account in a way that it will never be overdrawn. That's just amazing to me. But what am I to do with it? What, what, how, how do I handle that? Well, today... The aim of today's sermon is we, we think about Christ's sermon, and I'm a, this is a sermon on a sermon which really gets to some inception level things. But when we're looking here, what does it mean for us to gain some guidelines about God's gift of grace to us? What does that look like? When you read chapter 6 as it's divided out, the Sermon on the Mount is divided into three chapters, chapter 5, 6, and 7. Well, that's how numbers usually work out in that order. Um, but in chapter 6 where we're at today, what is it teaching us that you see a lot of practices? Chapter 5 taught us about beliefs, about understanding. But then chapter 6, when you get into it, Jesus seems to go from the beliefs and principles to the practices. As if taking what we believe and putting it into action. So what are these guidelines that we need to find? Well, we read from the very last part of chapter 6 as kind of the summation of these practices. What are we to gain? What are we, how are we to be guided? What are we to do when we have all these worries about life? What, what is it when it comes down to the central focus that we're meant to know? One of the last verses of chapter 6, verse 33, is a very familiar one where he says, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. 
In that, Jesus gives us something actionable. He gives us a command. He gives us a detail of something that we must do. Something we must know and put into practice when it comes to our understanding, when it comes to how to handle this gift of His grace. And that first thing is that it must be required. I mean, acquired. It must be acquired by us. Now, not acquired, like I said, and this is not us going on some mythical quest. This is not us going on some big task-oriented mission of works or anything like that. No, it is, it is us going to God and saying, I recognize you have something I don't have. And I recognize you have what I desperately need. And I can only acquire it by trusting in you. That's that whole verse. It's, it's seeking God's kingdom and His righteousness. Both and. These are not mutually exclusive. We don't want to say, God, I really want heaven, but this whole righteous thing, I could do without it. No, you can't get heaven without being righteous because no one who is left alone as a sinner without Christ and being made righteous could ever enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and you may say, well, I, I don't want heaven. I, I want the righteous. I want to be guilt-free. But I want the party. No, if you're being guilt-free, you don't want to go to a place ridden with guilt. And that would be not God's kingdom. It's a both and. But we understand that here, Jesus has given us a guideline. If you want to acquire this and you recognize the need that you have for it desperately, there is only one source. There is only one place. There is only one person. And that is Jesus Christ Himself. And He says, when you trust in Me, these other elements of life that sometimes cloud our judgment or cloud our worries or cloud our world, I'm going to take care of those things. Don't worry about that. But the central need that you have to get rid of the greatest guilt, the greatest anxiety, the greatest jeopardization to your joy and fulfillment and righteousness and need, Is trusting in me. Is seeking me. Seek that first. No, that's the chief reason for this. It brings you to me. There's a guideline for the gift. It brings us to the person that we need to know most. I wonder how many of us struggle with that. I'll be honest, I I can raise my hand. I struggle with that. Because we live in a very individualistic, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, self-made direction society. Where none of us, none of us ever want to feel like we're looking for a handout. Now, we're Baptists, so we'll take a free meal. But none of us want to be looked like like we're a charity case. Like someone's got to constantly be there for us. But what God says is about us is that He is doing something from the very first moment, before the foundation of the earth was made, as Ephesians tell us, He's doing something to redeem us and demonstrate His love to us. But we need to come to this moment where we realize there is a responsibility placed on us. Yes, God's sovereignty is all over it. Yes, God's providence brings us to a place where we can hear the message. Perhaps that's why you're even here today. 
that it may be your divine appointment that this is when you needed to hear the message. And God working out the circumstances of your life has brought you here. But yet, God requires our responsibility, our act of faith. He fuels it, but He requires the responsibility of the person to call upon Him and trust Him and recognize that we must go to Him for righteousness to be acquired. And if we don't go to Him, we're all living batteries not included. We're all deficient, insufficient with the power to save ourselves, to be righteous on our own. In fact, we would tend to corrupt that. But God restores that. God lets us come to Him. What's the second guideline? Not only that we must go to Jesus for it to be acquired, but we see that this is not purposeless. That these beliefs, these trusts, these, 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 these faithful things that we put into our minds and our hearts are meant to have an aftermath. That, that when we trust in Jesus and seek His kingdom first and His righteousness together, it's going to have a wake behind it. How many of you are boaters? Fishermen or anything like that? How many of you like going out to the, to the swimming hole? How many of you love it if you're out swimming and all of a sudden the boat comes by and there's just a huge amount of wake? Now, as a teenager or someone that really likes swimming, you were like, yay! As parents, you're like, that's my kids out there! You know, that kind of thing. But we noticed that wherever it went, there was always something behind it. That movement, that action left something. And this is where these practices that come into place are looked at. When Jesus is giving us these actions, He's not saying, oh, if you do all these righteous deeds, if, if you give the right way, or if you pray the right way, or if you fast the right way, um, or if you handle your treasures on earth the right way, I'm going to automatically, ding, 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 give you the prize and make you righteous. No, that is not what He's speaking at. And the whole world at that time had gotten to this level that if, I, if I'm good enough, and if I'm smart enough, and if doggone it, people like me, God's going to give me a kingdom. But that was not what Jesus was sharing. He wanted them to see that these practices, these actions have value, but they must be transformed first by what we've acquired from God. But then they will actually have an aftermath. They will leave something different there. What is that aftermath? Whenever... Jesus has gotten a hold of our life. Well, the first part that Jesus speaks of is, is a transformed benevolence. Verses 1 through 4 and 19 through 24 of chapter 6, it tells about what it means to give, what it means to give out of a generous heart, what it means to give out of something that is not simply, merely beneficial for your own sake, but is completely geared to the goodwill of another. That's why Jesus says, be careful not to practice your righteousness. Once again, what Jesus has given us, but it's not something that we've done for our own sake. Do not have to practice in front of others to be seen by them as if like, look what I got. This is my present. Now I'm going to show off with it. That's not it. And it's not of also, look what I earned because you didn't earn nothing. He says, otherwise you have no reward with your Father in heaven. So, but whenever you give to the poor, so this is Jesus inferring that this is something we will do. 
This is not a great suggestion. This is Jesus saying, it's going to happen. It should, and it better. But when you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues on the streets to be applauded by them. Golf clap. That's not what it's about. He says, truly, I tell you, that's all their reward that they had. It's there. That, that, it's here today, gone tomorrow. But when you give, once again, Jesus is inferring this will happen and should happen. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Do it in such a way it's so natural to you that you're not having to really contemplate and think this out. That it, it's become a normality for you. Not so that you can say, hey, Looky here. Here's my big cardboard check. I'm putting it in. He's saying, no, I, I, I'm doing it this way. So that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus speaks a little bit further than this in chapter nine, in verse 19 when He talks about how we deal with the possessions, these things that God has given us, these resources. But they're meant to have a purpose. It's not to, not to store these things up on earth where the moth and the rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys. That you deal with these, these elements of your life in a way that is charitable. You recognize the charity that's being given to you. And believe it or not, this is transformed not just for the sake of helping your fellow man, but as an act that is central to your worship. Don't believe me? Look at verse 24 of chapter 6. Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And that really was where it comes down to, is money. And this is not a message on giving, but it is a message on worship. It is a message on what it means to handle the grace gift that God has given us well. And realize that what we do with these things that God has placed in our life, they either bring worship to Him, or they detract from it they either say i'm devoted to you or i kind of despise you for making me do this i either love you or it's not so much love but the aftermath of righteousness realize what god has done that that's given you something you don't earn it transforms your benevolence it transforms your beseeching beseeching is a very king jimmy-ish word uh, in english for prayer that we beseech God. We go to Him in a way that says, I am your charity case, God. Please hear my prayer. It's like that of a servant presented before a king and saying, I don't have the power to reconcile what's going on, but I recognize you do. I don't have the authority to deal with this, but I recognize you do. And this transformed prayer is not that we would continue babbling on or trying to look super spiritual as chapters 6 verses 5 through 8 tell us that that's not what it's supposed to be. But there is supposed to be a win. That prayer is supposed to be an actual intentional time in your life. Jesus infers with that. says, when you do this, I'm saying you should and you will if you know me. This is where it's supposed to be. This is when it's supposed to be. But you also need to recognize that when you're praying... Because it's transformed prayer, you need to understand there's a, a who involved. That you're talking about the God who gave you grace. The one who dwells in heaven. The one whose name is to be honored as holy. The one who has a kingdom. The one who has a will. And you're asking for that to be made known. That you're not only talking about the who of your prayer. That you remember that when you're praying. And I think some of us could do a lot better with that. 
Not that we'd sit there and say, okay, let me think that through and put that down. But remember, when we're calling out to God, I mean, honestly, we can cast every care before Him, but we remember we're casting our cares before Him because He was first the one that cared for us. That He was first the one that says, I choose to let my voice be heard by you. I choose to give you my word so that you might know me. I choose to put people in your life so that I might be revealed to you. I have chosen to save you by sending my Son as the only way. I am the one who is the who of your prayer. When we forget that, our prayer is just us saying, God, here's my grocery list. My list is more important than you. That's a bad way to start. But when we say, God, wow, what a gift you've given me. I'm not worthy of that. And I recognize that you are the only one who could have done it. That you didn't halfway do it. And that you are holy and, and everything about this life, everything that I have is owed to you. And I want to please you. Help me not forget you in my prayer. We'll see the who of prayer. We'll see the what of prayer. That our chief aim of prayer is that, yes, we need our daily needs met, but we need God's will to be done. We'll need to see what it means to live out the forgiveness we've received and we pass forward to others. That's the what of our prayer. And we'll see that in that what of our prayer, we're asking God not to bring us into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. That we're asking God as the only one who is the ultimate victor to do what He has promised and to bring victory. That we'll have transformed prayer. You may say, Pastor, I've been really struggling with that. I, I really need some tips. I need some further guidelines in that prayer. I know a lot of people are thinking about that. Especially as the new year is approaching. You're saying, I need to be a, a man or a woman of prayer more. What does that look like? So I don't just get caught up and just say, well, God, here's my daily grocery list. See you later. What does it look like to have a healthy, gospel-focused prayer life? Well, if we look at the model that Jesus gives us, we see it has adoration. It remembers God for who He is as the chief. It has confession, saying, God, I recognize that I am a sinner that faces temptation every day, that there's an evil that, that tries to diminish my value for you, I'm confessing I need your help for deliverance. And whatever way you choose to deliver, that's the way I'm going to follow. It's an element of thanksgiving that recognizes, God, I'm coming to you because I already have seen the things that you've done in my life up until this point. Some of those are as simple as, I got to drink a, a, a $5 cup of coffee today. Some of those are, man, I got to open my eyes and get out of the bed today. That is a thankfulness blessing that I don't need to forget. And then we get to the supplication. Jesus says that we're coming to Him and asking Him for daily bread. That these cares that we have, we're invited to do that. But we need to be careful that we don't merely just do that and forget the rest. What's the third guideline? The first one is, of course, going to God to acquire the gift in the first place. <laughs> if you want it, you've got to go to Him to get it. Because He's the only one that can purchase it. He's the only one that can afford it. No one else could give it to you. Grandma, grandpa, a, a philanthropist near you, they can't give it to you. You've got to go to God. The, the, the second is that it's going to leave an aftermath that, that what Jesus does in your life, if, if you have no desire for holiness and living that out in practice after coming to Jesus, I would question whether you came to Jesus. And you didn't just try to say, well, I want to jump through a religious hoop to make me feel better about myself. 
But I don't want to do any of those things. No, if you come to Jesus and you see who He is and what He has done and what He has said, it's going to leave a wake in your life that's going to lead towards a wake in others by you living out that faith. That's not me trying to be ugly. That's just sharing what I believe is biblically there. Third guideline is let it give you assurance. All of this is a gift of grace so that your joy may be full, so that you don't live a life of worry and anxiety, that you understand that what God has provided gives you a secure hope, a solid gift that provides for, yes, your physical daily needs. It is good for you in the here and now, but it is also good for you in the eternal beyond. Knowing how we can face each day Helps remove the life of worry. And whenever the life is removed of worry, joy springs forth as its fruit. And when we can look and say, I understand that when I seek and trust the Lord, my daily provision will be made available. That is a gift of incredible blessing. There was a man named George Mueller. Some of you may have heard of George Mueller before. George Mueller was a... uh, a missionary of sorts in, in the Victorian days of England. Uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. And George Mueller was most famous for his largest of charitable works. And that was running an orphanage. Running an orphanage. Took care of the, the countless number of orphans that were on the streets of London. And many wondered how in the world he could transform so many lives that they would leave that orphanage and go on to live better, fulfilling, for fruitful, fulfilling lives. And, and, and at the same time, how was he able to get all these resources for all these kids? How was he able to do it? And I won't discount that George Mueller had some good friends. I won't discount that people heard about what Mueller was doing. I won't discount that. But Mueller attributes it to his activity of prayer. That every day he prayed, he was talking to a God that could accomplish more than he ever asked or imagined. And so whenever the bread ran out, he prayed to God for bread, physical bread. My order just canceled. That company is not going to have this. I have three dozen rolls. And loaves today. Mr. Mueller, could you and the kids need this today? Praise the Lord. When the milk ran out, I don't have any more ice for today's pickup. Could you and the kids use this milk? It was wonderful, miraculous. If you ever read his biography, it's amazing what would happen. And it was just God showing his faithfulness in the everyday to where Mueller was known as exceptionally as a man that was so charitable, so generous, so loving, because he recognized that in this life, if he could not depend on God, he had the greatest of woes. But if he could depend on God, and God showed Himself faithful in these daily provisions, as He promised He would, that we could go to Him for the cares of this life. In that, he understood he wouldn't have the greatest of woes. But he would follow the one who is the greatest of family, the lovingest of fathers, that says, I will not leave my children destitute. I will provide for their need. That stirs new joy. That brings newfound hope. 
It gives us assurance for the day today. But Jesus reminds us that we're not just seeking Him and having assurance for the here and now and then the day when the, the, the last breath is breathed, when the eyes are shut, there is no more. No, He's saying, I want you to know, I give you my righteousness, but I also give you an eternal kingdom. It is set not by your own worth, not by your own merit, not by whether you've been a good little boy or a good or a little girl, or whether you had too many naughty checks. That is not what it's like. We think about that as a jovial, jovial story, and it's a fun little thing for kids and that kind of thing. I get that. But it is no way an illustration of how God is. Because yes, God sees it all. He sees every bit of it. He doesn't have to check it twice. But you know what He does? He still says, paid, loved, righteousness credited, grace gifted, and I want to show them how to live it because I want them to know they can come to Me for what they need. I will let them acquire it from Me. I want to help them have a life that benefits from that with an aftermath that helps others draw near to Me. And I want to give them assurance that I am a God who never ever leaves them or forsakes them. You want to know some guidelines for this gift of grace. Go to the Father. Seek His kingdom first. Acquire it. Show. Get into the Word and live out the aftermath and see that the expectations are meant to be something that lift our lives up and and fill us with a sense of joy not only in this present day but in the day to come and see the assurance of God's provision. And see and know that it all is attributed to the gospel. It is all because our God, indeed, is a gracious, giving, gospel, good news oriented God that says, I am the glorious one, the holy one of heaven. And I see the very emptiness and the wickedness and the evil and the offense of sin for all men, not only in a general, but as the individual. And yet, by the Christ, by myself that I sent and took on human flesh. I went to the cross so that every single one, it's a big enough payment, it's a big enough gift that everyone who calls upon my name shall be saved. I allow them to acquire that assurance and to live in that aftermath. But I place that responsibility on them. Whenever I sovereignly open their eyes to see what they need, they must trust in me. They must seek Me. But when they do, the very trajectory of their eternity is changed. No longer is the default setting there that of sin, hell, death, and curse. The default setting is switched off. And God says, I intersect, I collide with your life, and I give you righteousness, heaven, life, blessing. This is what it means to live in that for eternity, but also to live in the here and now. Christmas really is a time of wonder when we talk about what God has done, what it means that He is God with us. But we also need to know what we're going to do with that. Today I hope that this sermon has helped you see it's something that you can do very much with and that you have a God who's even greater that says, I'm with you every step of the way. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, At this time, as we pause and reflect and respond on on the message from your word, when we reflect on your scripture, we come to that moment of, all right, this is is who you are and and what you've done and what you've said. And this is the part of 
What now must I do? What must I decide? And for some in this room, it could be that moment where they're reminded that they have tried to live a life with just a small portion of you. Maybe it's today is that they've attempted just to come to church or do some right things and, and they're, they're basing it on their own attempts. And yet they're faced with the fact that in that, they don't have assurance. In that, there's really not that big of an aftermath. In that, there's, there's nothing that they have really acquired from you. And they're still without peace and hope and joy and love because they're still without you. So God, I pray that you would show them that the gift of grace and peace and love and joy and hope is available today by trusting in you and calling upon your name. That perhaps today is the day they have heard your voice. God, help them not harden their heart. Lord, for those rest of us in the room that that we already have placed our trust in you, but we recognize that maybe we're mishandling this gift We're not really going back to you and saying, God, thank you for this. And and I I know this is meant to edify your kingdom. It's meant to be about your righteousness. And yet we've made it about our little kingdoms and and our attempt at at our nice little works bubble. Maybe they've said, I know I'm supposed to be doing these things, but I've avoided it. And the aftermath is just nominal. Maybe they're wondering why they don't have a sense of assurance. And it's because they've gotten this perfect gift and yet they've left it in the corner as if it has no value and the cares and the worries of this world has burdened their hearts to where joy is not a source of strength for them because it's not a it doesn't have a source so god i pray today in this moment that as we wrestle with what we must do next that that wrestling we come to a surrender and say god have your way Help me follow. Lead me. Show me what to do with your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you to keep your heads bowed, your eyes closed. I know we've just been spending some time in prayer there. But we always provide this moment of response. We call it the invitation where you're invited to respond to what God is placing on your heart and on your mind. For some in this room, it may mean that you have questions. And I welcome you. If you have a question that needs to be asked, and I will try my best to answer it. I'm down here. So for some of you, that means you need someone to pray with. And, and I will be my, do my best to pray with you or, or place you with someone that can pray with you. For some in this room, it might be a, a major decision as far as it pertains to your life and practice of faith. I'll be my, do my best to help you take that next step. But for this those in this room, it could be that today you need peace with God and trusting in the Lord. And if that's you, we want to help you walk through that. I'm going to be down here as the music plays. Please follow as God would lead you to follow. Whatever He's impressing upon your heart, do it. He never leads us astray. His gift is good. He is good. Follow 